0: Matthew chapter twenty-two, and starting in verse fifteen, I'll read our section for today, and then and then we will pray. Matthew twenty-two and verse fifteen. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, that is Jesus, in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their mistake, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Our Jesus, help us to marvel as well, to marvel at your wisdom But Lord, help us not to marvel as hypocrites, but to marvel as disciples, as those who love you, whose very hearts worship you, who know you to be true, not in pretense, but in sincerity, Lord. We know you are God. Father, help my stammering lips that your word would give something to your people today that it would give them what is needed for them in their souls, in their lives of worship, for us together in your house this morning on this, your day. Take care of us, Heavenly Father. We trust you. We trust that your word is complete for all that we need. In your name, amen. As we've been journeying through Matthew, then, we've come to this section which is um, the first action of the Pharisees after Jesus was confronted in the temple. He was confronted by the chief priests and the elders after his triumphal entry on a donkey in chapter 21. And we've been laboring over these three parables since then. Now, it's interesting to note in Luke, uh, I think we noted this last week, in Luke, Um, The account does not include the parable of the wedding feast. It goes directly from the parable of the tenants to this pericope where Jesus is confronted by these false disciples and tried to be, um, Jesus is attacked, really, and a snare is laid for him in their words. And so as we come to this section and we we look at it, we, we want to try to keep the broader context in mind. The thrust has been Jesus is indicting the the Jews and primarily the religious leaders. First, we saw the insincere son who said, yes, Father, I go, but would not. We saw the tenants who were entrusted with the vineyard, but would not yield its fruits. And so the vineyard was taken from them and given to a people yielding its fruits. We saw the guests of indifference, right? Those who were invited and then rejected, and even those who came but had no care for the things of God. And placed no significance on the wedding supper of his son. And so then we come to this. And we realize that a right response to these things ought to have been repentance. Ought to have been the fruit which God was looking for. The son who came to the vineyard. There was still time to repent. God was still there pleading with them. And yet the Pharisees go and plot how to entangle him in his words. And so we've come sort of to a, a change in what the focus is. Not radical, but somewhat of a change. There are now three accounts. And these are not parables, but small stories that teach a lesson. That's that, that word pericope, a small story that teaches a lesson, a small account. We have the question of paying taxes to Caesar. We have the question of the resurrection of the, that the Sadducees bring. And then going back to the Pharisees, which is the great commandment? And the conclusion of this, Jesus is going to ask them a question about himself and stop their mouths. And we will flow right into chapter 23, the woes that come to the Pharisees. Seven woes to the hypocrites. And so we're coming quickly to the judgment declared on them thoroughly by Christ. So these three, like the previous three, are illustrating or shall I say the three accounts now are illustrating um, in some ways the three parables. Not one for one, but in broad terms. And what is attempted here now is that these people come to Jesus, not in truth, not in sincerity, but to entangle him. So in the first one, we have the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of man. That is, the Jews are encapsulated by the broader dominion of Caesar and they have, a, they have trouble with this, and they think this is a place we can ensnare him. This is complex, and he cannot escape this. Either he's going to fall out of favor with the crowds or fall out of favor with the Romans. Either way, these Pharisees would be happy. And so they pit the kingdom of heaven against the kingdoms, kingdoms of earth. Then we have the second dilemma, where the Sadducees essentially take the things of this world and the dilemmas that are here and project them onto heaven and say, therefore, there is no resurrection. And Jesus shows them their error there as well. So in in that sense, they make a vertical dilemma between heaven and earth as well. First, there was a horizontal dilemma because they thought the kingdom of heaven was the Jewish nation versus the Roman nation. Second, then there will be this vertical dilemma. And thirdly, there will be a legal dilemma, the law. Which one is more, which one is greater? And so as they bring these these things to challenge him, we see the wisdom of Jesus as he responds to them and indeed condemns them. He shows them their error. But the overarching theme throughout this really is is this this main uh, part that is, don't sidestep the question of the primacy of Jesus with ethical or theological or eschatological nitpickings. Rather, Jesus is the prism and the paradigm not only for the church but also for all of these things. For politics, for ethics, for theology. Jesus is the central focus. And what these false hypocrites would do is they would take other things which are not unconsequential, which are not unspoken about in God's word, but which are not the central thing and make them dilemmas out of which they can then sidestep the thing, the important thing, Jesus Christ come in the flesh for them. So in each case, we'll find that um, we're going to aim to understand what Jesus says, and then hopefully, maybe we'll just crack open the door to each one of these topics. So my name is not to be sidetracked as they were with these things, but there are real substantive um, teachings here about these topics as we come to them. And so we, I trust we will at least open that door, and if you are interested, you will have a starting point for those theological inquiries. But primarily our goal is this, real worship from the hearts of his saints. Real worship because Christ has come And we get this because we realize the first thing right out of the gate that what the Pharisees are doing is not an honest venture. They have what could be real theological questions, real dilemmas, but what they are pursuing is not truth. They are seeking to entangle Jesus. The account in Luke is even more explicit with this. If we were to look at Luke chapter 20, I'm going to turn there for a moment so I can read it to you. You'll see... um, what maybe was only you could only pick up on here you know Matthew it says he sought to entangle them and so they sent certain disciples but Luke says this even more explicitly in Luke chapter 20 and starting in verse 19 says this the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour for they perceived that he had told this parable against them but they feared the people so what did they do they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something. He said, so as to deliver, them, as so as to deliver him up to the authorities in the jurisdiction, or jurisdiction of the governor. So then they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak teach rightly. And he goes on to question the same question that we have in Matthew. So these are not sincere disciples. These are false disciples. These are those who come in pretense. They they say the right thing. They make the right confession. Look at what they say about Jesus. They call him teacher. He says, we know that you are true. We know that you teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion. Jesus, you're a rock. You're not swayed by appearances. You don't look at what other men think. They're saying all the right things. They set this context up. Jesus, we appeal to you on your goodness, on your sincerity, on your truth. Just answer this little question for us. How deceitful it is to come before Jesus insincerely, as if he did not know our hearts, as if he could not see to the depth of who we are and know truly who are his, whether the questions that are asked are in pretense or in truth. How shameful it is To think that Christ, one, could be entangled in his words, but two, could be entangled by you, by our thoughts, by our dilemmas. This is not merely an innocent question. All their right adorations is not a pursuit of truth. And this ought to be a lesson to us. The pursuit of truth is not merely intellectual. The pursuit of what is is not merely a question of what can I know. Because the pursuit of truth is primarily found in a person. It is found in Jesus Christ. It is found in who you know. Who is the author of truth? We, We can refer to this section a little bit later, but as it comes up even now, in the Gospel of John chapter 8, we'll see some parallels here. John chapter 8 Well, notice this. It says, So Jesus said to the Jews in verse 31 of chapter 8, who had believed him, notice, the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but a son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. It's common for universities, some have taken this, you know, the truth will set you free, and it made it their, their uh, slogan. But some have failed to realize what Jesus is saying here. That is, you are enslaved to sin unless you come to Christ. You cannot have any true pursuit of truth without first having come to Christ because all you are pursuing is your own ventures, your own gains, your own goals. And likewise, we'll see the motivation here is very similar. Because as they come... We know what they are compelled by. You see, they're not sent by Jesus. They're sent by the Pharisees. Though they come pretending to be Jesus' disciples, they are disciples of hypocrites. They themselves being hypocrites. They're sent seeking to entangle him. And yes, just as the parable of the tenants, they're claiming the kingdom rather than yielding the fruit to the Son who has come. This is that same paradigm that is still going on here. You see, the Pharisees were a people group zealous for the nation of Israel. Zealous for the law. Zealous for the things of God. They were the conservatives. They were the ones who would not bend and compromise truth. Now the Herodians, you can hear in the name Herod there. The Herodians are the ones who would say, no, work with Rome. Give Rome the taxes let Rome build our roads. Let Rome. Let Rome. And so you can see that these two groups would naturally be at odds with one another, but here they're brought together because they have a common enemy in Jesus. They have a common enemy. What is this common thread, though? You see, the Pharisees, why would they pit the, these things against one another? If, if, he, if Jesus sides with the Herodians and says, no, you ought not to pay taxes to Caesar, well, they have him. Rome will take care of him. But if he sides with... The, I mean, that would be with the Pharisees, I'm sorry. But if he sides with the Herodians and says, yes, pay taxes, then he'll lose the following of the, of the children of Israel. Those who thought that they were unjustly taxed by Rome. Ultimately, the Pharisees want to hold on to this earthly kingdom. This kingdom of the Jews is where their heart is attached. And they're not willing to see what Jesus has been drawing them towards. The wedding feast. The wedding feast. The coming, the son who has come, seeking the fruits of the vineyard. And so in this hypocrisy and in this dilemma, we see what um, is at stake. But just to, to draw that out a little bit more, I'm going to turn to Deuteronomy 17. Why would the Pharisees have thought that it was wrong to pay taxes to Caesar? Where does that come from? Is there a law about that? Well, not explicitly, and and I guess to be totally honest, we don't have an explicit motivation that is to say, here's how we exposit the law, this is why we think you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. But it seems reasonable to think, if we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17, that they might be thinking something like this. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, God gives some commands about when they go to possess the land, and He says this to them in verse 14: When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and you possess it and dwell in it, then and then you will say, "I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me." You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose, one from your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And then it goes on to say, only he must not acquire many horses. And perhaps you could see how this reasoning would go. Look, we're brought out of exile. We've been brought back to the land. This is the land of God. We shall not have a king over us that is not one of the brothers. A king that's not a Jew. Who is Caesar? Who is Herod to be over us? We are God's people. We're living by the law. God says, do not have a king over me. Therefore, to pay taxes is to contribute to that system. It's to give honor to Caesar and not to God. And you could understand the conflict even as Caesar himself says, I am a God, and you are to pay tribute and honor to me. Is paying taxes then a tribute to Caesar over God? You could see the dilemma. Perhaps we could even, maybe for a moment, think, you know, these Pharisees are not so crazy. But let's hold our judgment till we hear what Jesus has to say. Listen to what he says. But first observe the, the tact that he takes. He asks for a coin. And he says, give me a coin to pay the, that you would pay the tax with. right? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to him, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Now, pausing there and thinking about how Jesus handles this. He brings them something that they, or he asks them to bring, rather, but he shows them something that they cannot deny. Look at the coin. What's stamped on it? Whose face is that? Who does it belong to? Belongs to Caesar. Okay. And he's going to make implications for that. But this is one way that we, even in our evangelism, in our speaking with one another, we can model off of. We We can take Christ's example that has put something before the naysayers eyes that they cannot deny point to something that is true and then show them how that truth ultimately is not against what they're saying but it is it is against sorry is against what they are saying but is with Jesus so in this way Jesus gets them to point out their own error what does he say he says therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things which belong to God. Now, this is, a common, this is a common thing. We're used to hearing this. And we can take this in two parts very easily. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Render to God the things that are God. Simple enough, right? Two things, two different kings, two different kingdoms. Render to one what belongs to one. Render to the other that belongs to the other. Well, in some ways, it's that simple, but in other ways, perhaps not. Let's take it one thing at a time, though. First, render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. What does this look like? Well, if we're to take this and apply this, what, what are we to render to Caesar? What things ought to be rendered to Caesar? Well, if Caesar is a, sort of the paradigm here for the governments of this world, what ought we to render In this case, it was tax. The tax which Caesar was exacting from the Jews. Jesus is in effect saying, look, you're failing to recognize the times here. God has put you in exile because of your sin. God has put a governor over you. Caesar is over you. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That is, God claims providence over the situation that they're in. We already saw last week when God called the Roman troops his soldiers, if you remember that, God will send his soldiers and destroy the city. And here again, Jesus is saying, look, the Roman government is not outside the plan of God. Though he is over you, God has appointed him. Now, can we see this other places? I, I think we can. I think the Apostle Paul is our, is our example in this. Let's, uh, let's turn to Romans chapter 13 for a moment. Romans chapter 13. I think this is Paul expositing this very thing. We could think of Romans chapter 12 as those things which belong to God. And we could think of chapter 13 as those things belong to the governor. Though we'll see that those things are not quite so separable, perhaps. Because the same God who demands one also demands the other. He says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And then he goes on. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Okay, so Jesus is saying, in effect, look, Rome is put over you, Jews. Rome is there by God's appointment. He is the authority over you. Render to him the things that belong to him. Now, how is he thwarting this dilemma? First, we must realize the Pharisees really do not have ground to stand on when they refuse to pay taxes. There's nothing in the law that explicitly says do not pay taxes. And even the motivation, or sorry, the the emphasis of Deuteronomy 17 was saying, do not set up for yourselves a king from the other nations, but one of your brothers shall rule over you, right? This is not that. They have not set up Caesar. Caesar has been put over them. They are in captivity by God's providence. And so the dilemma that the Pharisees are in is brought upon themselves not by the word of God but by their own pride, by their own arrogance, their own unwillingness to read and understand the providence that God has put them in. They would rather cling to the glory that they had in the Jewish nation than to submit to what God had put them in. And from that, then we can see that God has called certain things to be under the jurisdiction of the governor. Now, I'm going to take for a moment, if I can, if you bear with me, I'm I'm going to just lay a little bit of a a foundation for this. So, it's often often Christians face, even now, the dilemma between worldly things and heavenly things. How are we to deal with politics and the church? How are we to deal with... um, with certain issues that that Christianity is against? How are we supposed to deal with worldly employment and yet a heavenly calling? Can Christians truly live in the world and yet not be of the world? And how how do these two things fit? And like I said earlier, my goal here is not to get distracted on the side issue. This would be a side issue. That is, in some ways, how do we live in this world relative to the governing authority. And I say that's a side issue, not because it's not important, but because the central focus of this text is Christ and who he has come, not particularly Caesar. Nevertheless, this is here in God's word. And so I want to, I want to open a door for us. And we're, we're taking for our example, just if you will, I, I know I'm on a bit of a, a rabbit trail, but stay with me for a moment. Um, we could look at the Apostle Paul's example in this. I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and just, just take, for example, a moment how Paul deals with this. OK? So this is a side note. Paul is acting as a pastor to these people in Corinth, and they have questions about the resurrection. We're in Matthew. Next week we'll deal with questions of the resurrection. okay? So there's similar themes here. Now he wants to deal with those themes. He's not going to leave them aside. Some of the things he's going to answer, some of the things he's going to say, I don't know, right? We do not know what we will be, but we will be like him. But first he says this, in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, and according to the Scriptures. And he goes on to talk about his credentials and being a minister of that gospel. And only then does he then take up the issue of resurrection. And he does it through the paradigm of Christ's resurrection. Notice in verse twelve, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Do you see what he's doing? There's, There's matters of first importance, the gospel. Jesus Christ has come. He has died. He's been raised from the dead. Now, taking that, we may look through that as a prism into the question of the resurrection. Christ has been raised from the dead. Therefore, how can you say that we will not be raised from the dead? Do you see how that Paul is doing that? First things first, then second things. So hopefully, we can do that today as well. And I want to say, first things first, Jesus is the primary focus in Matthew chapter 22. He is the one who is claiming to be the Son of God. He is the one that will condemn the Pharisees for not seeing this. But I want to show you... something very interesting if we're talking about the question of how do we how do we live in two worlds as it were the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of men let us not forget christ himself what is he going to ask the pharisees at the end of this he's going to say how is it that david in the spirit calls him lord saying the lord sit at my right hand till till at my right hand i put sorry until i put your enemies under your feet if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So Jesus puts a paradigm before the Pharisees and says, how can David call his own son Lord? How can he be son of David and Lord of David, right? How can he be both man and God? Jesus Christ himself is that paradigm, right? He is son of man, son of God. And so in Christ himself, we see something of our example in living in this world. He was a man, and yet he was God. He was sinless, and yet he lived with sinners. He was totally sold out for the kingdom of heaven. All his allegiance was for his father, and yet he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So first we want to read this through the paradigm of Christ. And just to open that door a little bit further... I'm gonna say this and then we'll we will come back to the things that are God. So we're we're gonna, for the remainder, we're on two things: what things belong to Caesar and what things belong to God. That's the focus. But on what basis do we render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's? Classically, this basis is actually found all the way in Genesis. And it's interesting to note that there's another place in Genesis where you see both the image of God. And the dominion of the earthly nations brought and paired together. And perhaps I jumped a step in your mind. I don't want to do that. But what we're getting to is when when Jesus looks at the coin and he says, whose image is on that coin? And he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, to God the things that are God. The implicit question is, whose image is on you? That's the question. You're concerned about money and this kingdom but you're not concerned with whose image is impressed upon you and rendering the things of God to God. So anyway, with that same paradigm, Caesar and God and the image of God, we have a a parallel passage in Genesis chapter 9. In Genesis chapter 9, if I can turn there, Noah and his family has just been brought through the flood. So remember quickly, if we can pick up the the thread of Genesis for a moment, right? God creates the world. Adam and Eve are placed, well, Adam is placed in the garden. Eve is created in the garden. And they are both brought to all the trees, and yet they fail to keep God's covenant God promised them death if they ate of the tree, and they took and ate, and God pledged to them death, and yet God did not execute full death at that time. He came and gave a gospel promise, and he said, the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent. And so he gave them children and offspring so that Christ would come. And yet the wickedness of man was unrestrained. And so God brings a worldwide flood, and He floods the ground, all of it, and all mankind, except for a few are saved through this flood. And then after God saves them, He comes out and He makes this covenant with Noah. And one of the questions that is going through our mind as we read Genesis is, what about the image of God? Adam and Eve were created with the image of God in garden, and since then it has been nothing but sin and wickedness. So much so that God would kill all the beasts of the earth and all the men and women and children, save only those whom he brought safely through the ark. And then he makes this covenant, and he says this, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, Upon everything that creeps in the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for and for your life blood I will requiring a rec, require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And then God said to his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, everything, I will no longer, he says, I establish my covenant with you, never again shall I flood the earth. What what I'm picking up on here, though, is that Jesus says, even after the flood, I will require a reckoning for the shedding of blood. When a man dies, I require a reckoning. And most theologians go here to say, this is where earthly governments have a right to bear the sword, right? If, If there is one rule that has to stay for any civilized government, it has to be, do not murder. If someone murders, we require a reckoning of that. Right? And that is laid down, as it were, in creation. And this is, this is a basis for what people have called uh, common grace. You see, after the flood, God promises, I will no longer flood the earth again. And so he restrains the evil and wickedness of man. He restrains it, and he gives gifts even to those who are not saved, that they might live in this world, enjoy the things of the world, and so that those who are being saved might be saved. So what does this have to do with Matthew 22? All I aim to do was to open the door and say, as Jesus talks about kingdom of heaven, kingdom of man, the basis for that is to say, God has providentially provided for his people, not only in salvation, but also in the daily living of life. God has given us governors, and he has given us authorities to protect, to provide, and to do that which we need to do. God is preserving his people until the final judgment. And this is on the basis of a covenant that he made with Noah and with all creation that he will not destroy the world again with a flood. And so Paul picks that up also then in Romans 13. And he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And so we leave that point there. Simply to say, there are things which belong properly to the governor. That is, it is right and appropriate that we have authority over us, governors over us. If we break the law, We are punished. Are they not God's servants is what Paul says in Romans 13. They are God's servants sent to punish the evil and the good. You do have nothing to fear if you do what is good. And so this paradigm being laid down, Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The Son of God says it's appropriate, even as a Christian, even as a disciple of Christ, to give those things which are appropriate to Caesar. There's no conflict there. You must not take for yourself the, uh, the uh, attitude that I cannot participate in this system because it's corrupt. If there was ever a corrupt system, the Roman government was a corrupt and pagan system. And yet God says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But then, he says, of primary importance, render to God the things that are God's. Whose image is on you? Well, we read this morning in Genesis that God made man in his own image. After his own image, he created them, male and female, he created them. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, if you noticed when we read that this morning, the first thing he did is he created them and he gave them dominion over the fish, over the sea. One of the things that it means to be created in the image of God is to be given dominion. We can see this even in common natural observance today. One of the most dehumanizing things is when someone is taken and put in prison and they have no realm or dominion over anything. God has given to each one a realm. To some of you, you are a parent. To some of you, you're a grandparent. To some of you, you're a supervisor. To some of you, you are... Uh, a teacher to some of you you are a student but to each one God has given a certain realm of authority and in this way we picture a little bit of God's kingship over us and to whatever extent we have authority God calls us to render that to God in whatever way possible God calls us to take that dominion and give it to him. Secondly, another way in which we are created in the likeness of God is by our very nature. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, You have set eternity in the hearts of man. Something about what it means to be a human is that God has not just set the here and now in your heart like an animal or like a beast that says, now I eat, now I drink, now I run because I'm scared. God has set eternity in the hearts of man. Our minds are set on what comes at the end. What is it all for? Where are we headed? What is going on? To use a big word, eschatology and things are baked in from the beginning. God has set eternity in the hearts of man. And we see this because after repeating, he made them in his image, he made them in his image, he made them in his image. He says, and then he rests on the seventh day. That is, he puts before them a rest. And we know that this is a picture of that eternal rest that we will enter into. Hebrews picks that theme up and says there remains a rest for the people of God. If Joshua had given them a permanent rest, then there wouldn't be one. But as it is, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And so, as we take that, we realize created in the image of God, God has called us not only to this life. God has called us to more than just life. Yes, it involves providing food for our families. Yes, it involves Taking care of our children and mowing the grass and going to work and making a meal and supervising and and managing and governing and learning. It involves all those things. But you are not just those things. You are created in the image of God. Your time is not to be taken up merely with distractions of this little issue and that little issue. This nitty-gritty and that. Should I render my taxes to Caesar or not? Is it right for me to vote this way or that way? Yes, those things are important in their place, but they are not so important as realizing that you are created in the image of God and he has called you to a heavenly calling. He has set before you heaven. We are created for eternity. He has set that in our hearts. Let us render then to him that which is to be given to him. And one of the ways we do that is what we're doing here right now. Every day, on the seventh day of the week, we remember that God has set eternity in front of us. There remains a Sabbath observance for the people of God as a way of saying, look, as long as there's still a heaven in front of you, there is still something on earth to be had that helps us remember and press on and lead into that. Render to God the things that are God's. And finally, communion, that is, fellowship with God. God has made human beings, unlike beasts and animals in this way, that we are made to walk with God. Was this not what Adam did in the garden? He walked with God in the garden. We were made to commune with God, to fellowship with Him, to be drawn into close relationship with Him. These are the three things that the image of God bears upon us. Our nature, eternity. Our office, kings and priests. Our relation, primarily to God. Our communion with him. Now these these disciples in our text today, these false disciples, rejected all three of those things. The hypocrisy that they were caught up with was threefold. The Jewish nation, primarily, As its end, this is the main goal, not walking with God in sincerity, not in communion, and distorting their jurisdiction. They had reign and rule over the worship of God in the temple, and yet they rejected the Son of God, the one whom it was all pointing towards. Likewise to us, brothers and sisters, what has God given us reign and rule over that we might be faithful in, that we might render to God, which is God's? Is it how we cook a meal? Can we render that to God as it is God's? Can we teach our children in it that there is something to understand about the provision of God even in a simple meal? Is it how we lead or how we teach or how we learn? Can we not render to God the things that are God truly from the heart because Christ has bought us? This leads into our, our uh, concluding thoughts. How are we to render these things to God? We're called to obedience. We're called to worship. We're called to faith. But how? How ought we to do these things? I'm going to turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. And he says this. I'm sorry, chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse 16. But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law Against such things there is no law and those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So how are we to render to God the things that are God? We're to render these things in the Spirit. In the Spirit, that is, First and foremost, in faith and true discipleship to Jesus, we recognize that every sphere of life has come under the reign and rule of Christ, so as we are to render them to him in worship. We are to walk according to the gospel, keeping in step with the Spirit. And first off, this is to say, if we belong to Christ, we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Do you see how Jesus is taking these disciples and drawing their minds up? When he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's, he's saying, okay, you're false disciples because you're so preoccupied with the things of this world about ensnaring Jesus Christ primarily, but even then about whether we should pay the taxes or not, that you're missing the fact that I am calling you to crucify the desires of the flesh, to render your life to God. Does that make sense? We're to render them in the Spirit, through faith in Jesus Christ. This is what we're called to in Matthew chapter 22 in this section. Notice those words though. You hypocrites, show me the coin. Let us not be as the hypocrites. Let us not Seek our, uh, our own devices as we go to the Scripture, thinking primarily about how to solve this riddle or that riddle, how to analyze this or that. But primarily, God, what is yours? How ought I to render the things that are yours to you today? How am I to take the things that you have given me and give them back to you? That which has your image on it truly belongs to to you. And that is not separate from our submission to the governing authorities. That is uh, part of it, part of what we are called to as Christians. But the main thing, the main focus is that Christ has bought us with his blood. We ought to render to him the things that are his. He has put his image on you, therefore let us live in this way. Jesus, help us You are the chief cornerstone, rejected by men. We are the little stones, the pebbles, being built up into a holy temple in the Lord. Lord, let us not miss the fact that you are the central focus in life. All things culminate and point toward you, Lord, keep us as your disciples from being distracted with that which is not profitable. Rather, Lord, in our focus on you, teach us the way of wisdom. Help us to walk in a w- worthy manner. Help us to render those things which belong to you to you. Help us to do this in faith. Lord, trusting in your spirit as you have given us both motivation and an ability to do what we see is good and acceptable in your sight. We pray for this in your name. Amen.